Welcome to Green Tree. If you're visiting, we especially extend to you uh, an invitation into our family. This is a church that really savors the family connections. I don't know if you've been sniffing the air of late, but there's a sort of insanity about what's going on in our world, is there not? I heard that one executive saw his fortune of $1 billion reduced to $333 million. And I thought, the poor man, I hope he survives. Better get used to McDonald's, brother. And what do you think about the hedge fund managers who were paid, take a deep breath, $1 billion last year? One man earning $1 billion in one year? That's more than the 10 poorest nations put together. You've got to admit it's sort of crazy, mad, insane. Now, when we come to the gospel, we see a different sort of insanity, which is far more pleasing. If you were to take the wealth of the entire world and multiply it by the total gross domestic product of the USA, and then multiply it by infinity, you will still only have a fraction of the wealth that belongs to a believer. So that's the good news. Listen then for the wealth and see how it applies to your life as we read the scriptures. And I'm going to read and comment on them as we go along and then uh, draw two points and some final conclusions. So here is our call to worship this morning. This is what it says. Praise be to the Lord, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. What exactly was this spiritual blessing look like? Well, he takes the next 14 verses to explain it, but I think what probably grips your mind is that he has blessed us in the heavenly realms. And maybe you're thinking, hmm, how do I spend money from heaven buying food on earth and can I spend that coinage for a roof over my head so the Holy Spirit leads the apostle to catalog them but it's all still in the heavenly realm and so the apostle leads them in prayer and so we pick this up in verse 16 and this is what he prays in the light of this wealth I keep asking that the glorious Father may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation so that you may know him better. So I want to comment on the word know there. In the Greek, there's a preposition added to it, so it reads a little bit differently. That you may know him is the word to have an epi knowledge of something, an intensified knowledge of it. Let me put it to you in this way. When I turned 24, I became the solo pastor of a church in Durban, South Africa. 
And that first morning I rose very early to go over my sermon and start my ministry and the tension was crackling within me and the telephone rang at about 7 a.m. and a lady said, I called my mentor, I'm not quite sure how to, and he, he cut me off and he said in a very cold voice, didn't they teach you that in seminary? I said, Mr. McPherson, of course they did, but I was sitting in the back row dreaming about the weekend with my fiancé. Please walk me through the funeral. And he relaxed a bit and he walked me through it. And then I conducted the funeral. And you see what had happened was the knowledge of the classroom, which is a very different thing, became the knowledge of experience. And knowledge became epi-knowledge. And so the apostle is here saying, I keep asking the glorious Father to give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation because this you cannot reckon and fathom just with your natural ability. And so the Holy Spirit must come and give you a gift. And the gift is so that you may have an epi-knowledge of the wealth that we are talking about. And so he goes on and he prays. I pray also, and this is the theme continued, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know, again, an epi-knowledge, so that you may know three things. Number one, the hope to which he has called you. Number two, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And thirdly, and this is the one we will focus on, that you may have an epi-knowledge of his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now he does something remarkable. And maybe you've noticed this in a prayer meeting before. He goes from praying to preaching. <laughs> Because he interrupts his prayer there. And so when we look at the next verse, he's not praying anymore. He's now explaining. And it's as if he's been arrested by the thought, this is so great, such an immense thought. I need to explain it. And so he does that. And interrupting his prayer, he says that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. Now, have you grasped that? I'm still wrestling with it. And I hope to wrestle with it and apply it and come into an epi-knowledge of it until the day I die and I see the reality of it in, in a more spectacular way. But this is something that needs to grip us with a certain ferocity because it's so life-changing. Just look at the words he uses. We list the six of them separately. It's as if he went to his 
thesaurus and said, let me dredge up every word I can. This power is incomparably great. This power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand and exalted him. And yet we still feel, well, yeah, it's all sort of a little bit out of reach. And so the apostle says, well, hang on, I'll, I'll expound this a bit further. And so in chapter 2, he goes on, having said he exerts in, uh, in Christ when he raised him from the dead. In chapter 2, far above all power and principality and dominion and everything for the church, he goes on and he says... I'm sorry, I've lost my way here. <laughs> he, let, let me again just list the three things that he did. He raised Christ from the dead. He seated him in his right hand, and he placed all things under his feet. And now in chapter 2, he brings it home to your own experience. So in verse 4, he says, Christ was dead, raised, and exalted. And in verse 4, he says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, now take note very carefully, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in sins and transgressions, for it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. So when we put the two side by side, we see the believer was dead, raised, and exalted. And that follows the very progress of Jesus Christ from the tomb to his throne on high. Now, it, it's much more powerful in the original language because the verbs used are the same even in English. But in the original language, he just puts a little preposition there, the preposition sun, which means together with. And so you don't have those long phrases strung out together. You've got dead and, if you like, sun dead. Together with. Together with Christ. You were raised, and together with Christ you were exalted. And the power of it comes like a, a, a wonderful revelation. Why? My history is the same as the history of Jesus. Where he was dead, I was entombed as well. Where he was raised, well, I was raised together with him. And where he was exalted, I have been exalted with him. And what is he describing? He's describing your conversion. He's saying you've already had a taste of the exceeding greatness of God's power exerted in your dead heart, which was made alive in Christ and has now been exalted with Christ to heavenly places where it is above every thing that you can mention as a power or an authority. That's the scripture. I hope it's gripping your heart. But now, what does it actually mean? Because is this just spiritual stuff which has got no application to me? By no means. And so there are two thoughts that come very strongly out of this. The first one is that Christ is our pioneer and trailblazer. 
He was in the grave. He came out of the grave. He was exalted. And we followed in his experience. So he blazed a trail for us. One of my very first wilderness backpacking trips was to a very magnificent, remote, and high series of mountains in southern Africa. And I went with my experienced friend, and we'd been climbing steeply for about two hours when a fog bank of clouds rolled in over the mountains and enveloped us. Uh, the fog what the British call mist, was so thick that I could barely make out the backpack of my companion ahead of me. And we were stumbling along together up the trail, and after about 30 minutes, he turned to me and said, I have a terrible confession to make to you. And I said, Frank, what's that? He said, we lost. <laughs> Now, this is no small thing because we'd ascended into the precipitous country and all around us there were 500-foot drops off the edge of cliffs. So I said, well, no problem. Let's just sit down and wait it out. And he said, you don't understand. This sometimes lasts for three weeks. And my heart sank, and then it rose into my throat and then I said goodbye to my wife in my mind. And we stumbled on. And then he stopped and he said, look. And there was a footprint in the mud ahead of us. And we followed the direction of the footprint and found others that led us to the trail. And we came safely down the mountain, which is why I'm with you this morning. <laughs> a footprint when you are lost. Maybe you feeling lost today, as if the fog has rolled in over you. You don't know which way to turn, and you're aware of the danger of your situation, whether it be health or emotional or relational or spiritual. I don't know what your struggle is, but you're feeling lost. Oh, the eye of faith sees the footprint of Jesus. And he has led the way. And as we follow his footsteps, he leads us out of that. And then we suddenly realize, oh, I haven't gone down. I've gone up. I'm above the clouds. I've walked the trail. And Jesus took me there. So this thought of him being one who's gone before is something that we've got to latch on to and make sure that we understand it and that we follow closely. And then the second element is that he is our representative. You notice that he was exalted to the right hand of God or he was enthroned and there he represents us. A representative goes ahead of us. Our representative for Kirkwood is a member of our own congregation, Rick Stream. And he goes ahead of us to Jefferson City and represents us there. And while he's there, hopefully, he's looking out for our interests. And he represents Kirkwood. And he's always, I hope this is true, Rick. <laughs> 
He's always watching out, watching over us, as it were. Now, in a much greater and more wonderful sense, Jesus Christ represents us on the right hand of God the Father on high. The full force of it, maybe you will get when you remember that on June uh, 26, 19... 60, you won't remember it, 1963, John F. Kennedy went to Berlin, and after the Second World War, the Allies cut up Germany into areas of influence, and France and Britain and America had their regions, and Russia had their, and in the middle of the Russian area of influence was the city of Berlin. Under constant threat, they built the wall in 1960, and now they were threatening all the time to overrun the city and take away the freedom of the citizens. And on that occasion, June 26, 1963, John F. Kennedy stood before 200,000 people in front of the, the uh, city hall in Berlin and he said, all free men, wherever they live, are citizens of Berlin. And therefore, as a free man, I take pride in the words, Ich bin ein Berliner. I am a citizen of Berlin. And apparently the crowd stood stunned. And then the significance of it sank in, and they erupted with celebration and joy. What had he done? He had said, I am now going to be your representative, and if anybody attacks you, they will be attacking me, and I have the resources of the greatest nation in the world to command. That's why they were so blessed. And that's why you, dear friend, should be so blessed today. Because Jesus stands before the throne of God and he says, Ich bin ein Mensch. I am a human. I represent those sinners. And he is watching out for us and tapping into the resources of heaven and of God and making them available and making sure that we can live in the light of all of those resources. Now you see, these are immense truths. They will see you through your darkest day. They will take you safely home. So let's conclude with these three thoughts. The first one, this is the only valid description of what a Christian really is. A Christian is someone who's been raised from the dead. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, says the Apostle Paul, but now you have been made alive together with Christ. And my fear is that there are those who think that Christianity is living in your tomb and putting up religious icons and a cross on that wall and then going to religious things like church and worship and prayer meeting, getting involved in social action and saying that's what Christianity is. It's not. Christianity is the exertion of God's resurrection power in a dead heart. What grand news that is. 
How fabulous that is to come out of that tomb and come into the glorious light and power of the true gospel where Jesus makes you alive to God and the grace of God exerts its power on you and you are exalted and you are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What fabulous news that is. Is it true of you? Because by embracing Christ, you embrace his history. And today is God's strong invitation to you. Let Jesus represent you. He trailed a blaze. He blazed a trail for you. You can follow in his victorious footsteps. Second conclusion is that we should focus fully on this objective nature of our salvation. You see, there's a subjective side to our salvation, and that is that Jesus comes to live with us. And that's a profound truth. But the objective nature of our salvation is far greater and the realm in which we should actually live and the source from which we should draw all of our living. And that is this that Jesus says to us, you know, it's nice down here and I really like your house, but it's a bit small. Why don't you come and live with me? <laughs> and that is as different as night is from day. And my fear is that because of the subjective wallowing that we do in our culture, where the me is everything and I and what God does for me is the, the big thing that I testify to, we lose sight of the majestic nature of the gospel, which is that God actually invites us to share the throne with King Jesus. All counseling, you see, is actually aimed at helping people get out of the hole of themselves. It's the problem in a marriage that a husband or a wife are so self-absorbed that they are not doing the godly thing in their marriage. It's the problem in depression because somebody is just so self-absorbed and overwhelmed by life circumstances that they... Their mental faculties are affected and they're dwelling on it and we want to help them out of that. It's the problem with grief. When grief overwhelms people, they are so much in the subjective element of their grief and so it could be with pain and sorrow and the counselor comes alongside and with great sympathy and understanding is saying let's walk together and he's praying and hoping and guiding and just wishing for the day when the person will step back and take an objective view of their circumstances and be able to say oh that's how it's all laid out I can lean into my depression and my sorrow and my grief and my pain and I can embrace it as part of my real human experience but I'm actually above it and I can see now. I can follow the footsteps and come out above the cloud bank. That's what all counseling is trying to do. The prophet Isaiah says of Jesus the Messiah, he is a wonderful counselor, 
And you know why he's a wonderful counselor? Because he doesn't just pray and hope and wish and guide you to come out of that subjective experience of yours. He exerts his power. <laughs> and he says, here's the resurrection. Let's get you out of this in my power. Let's get you above this so that you can enjoy the sensation of your humanity without being overwhelmed by it. I've been there through that as well, and my footprints lead through your sorrow and through your grief and depression. Let's get above it. And here's the power I'm going to exert it on your behalf, which leads us to our last conclusion. I was once in a stupor of isolation, feeling disconnected from God, overwhelmed by the burdens of being a husband and a pastor, distraught by the difficulties of ministry, and far from caring and ministering to people in the congregation, I felt like snapping at them and saying, grow up, darn it all. And a spiritual comrade, when I shared it with me, said, look down. And I smiled. That's a Freudian slip. I said, you mean look up? He said, no, look down, for you are seated in the heavenly places in Christ, and you are enthroned above the struggle. Look down. It registered. And I realized the exaltation of Jesus was not pie in the sky by and by. It was very real for me in my very real circumstances. It reached down to my cloud-enshrouded condition, provided the footprint that has led me home ever since, provided the very resources I was desperate for in that time of crisis. Let us pray together.